Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Well, I am really excited to have with me today Dr. Gary Birch. Gary is a New Testament scholar and professor at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Gary earned his Ph.D. in New Testament Studies at King's College and Aberdeen University in Scotland, where he studied under I. Howard Marshall. He's the author of numerous books and publications, including commentaries on the Gospel of John and the Letters of John. He's also written a book called Jesus in the Land and a whole series of, of I think, wonderful little books that are uh, really good insights into the understanding the New Testament and the, and the biblical world. Uh, and the series is called Ancient Context, Ancient Faith. Including that series are books like Jesus and the Jewish Festivals and the Bible and the Land and Encounters with Jesus. He's also written, however, a book that I think is wonderful and needs to be read by everyone called Whose Land, Whose Promise? What Christians Are Not Being Told About Israel and the Palestinians. Gary, let's start with um, uh, your, your studies in the Gospel of John. I know you're a Johannine scholar. And, 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 and kind of give us some thoughts a little bit and some of the distinguishing features between the Gospel of John and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke and things that might help enliven the text for some of our uh, listeners. Sure. Well, first of all, Rob, it's great to be with you, and it's fun to do this podcast together. Um, uh, my whole career actually has been devoted to New Testament studies, and uh, I specialized early on in the Gospels and the historical Jesus. And that also meant that uh, you have to really work as, uh, closely with one of the Gospels. Most of us specialize like that. And I was working on the Gospel of John. Throughout the history of the church, the Gospel of John has always been viewed as one of the most penetrating uh, stories about Jesus' life. Um, even when uh, uh, scribes uh, began to illustrate manuscripts, they used to put <clears throat> they used to use a, an eagle actually to represent the Gospel of John. Every Gospel actually had its own symbol. Hmm. And uh, so, yeah, John was an eagle, and, and many of us think that it's because uh, eagles were always viewed throughout history as having this majesty and power and dignity. So what you have is, in the Gospel of John, is uh, a gospel that I think actually presupposes that you have read Mark right. or Matthew. And, and what John wants you to do is take you behind the scenes. And so he gives you a lot of stories you would not read in the other gospels. But also he gives you insights uh, as a narrator that uh, you just don't find in the other three Gospels. So that is why throughout the history of the church also, John is called the beloved Gospel. Not only penned by the beloved disciple, but I think it's really called the beloved Gospel as well. Um, you ask the average group of Christians, what are your favorite verses from Jesus? Mm. And uh, believe it or not, 90% of them will be right from the Gospel of John. So uh, I've made this comment before, tell me what you think about it, that that in many ways, the Gospel of John in particular, maybe even the whole biblical story, is really taking us beyond Jesus to, to the role of the Holy Spirit. And then in some ways, you can may even argue that the Holy Spirit is equally prominent in the Gospel of John as Jesus is, as Jesus is paving the way for the coming of the Spirit. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's probably right, Rob. Um, in fact, John actually uh, gives away mm -hmm. that agenda inside of his own book. So um, John has the most developed view of the Holy Spirit of any of the Gospels, and I would say actually perhaps of any book of the New Testament, you have more attention to the Holy Spirit than you'd ever expect. So in the upper room, uh, Jesus is describing what is going to happen after his death and resurrection and ascension, and he gives about five uh, predictions, five descriptions of what it will be to live inside, uh, to live with the Holy Spirit as the promised replacement of Jesus' presence in the world. So remember, uh, John, the beloved disciple, who I think is the author of this book, he is listening to this, 
And so he is writing this gospel after he has had all of these great experiences. So Jesus talks about, you know, the, the ability of the Spirit to recall the things that Jesus has taught, to reveal to the disciples that uh, the things that he could not reveal to them during his earthly ministry. So what you have, I think, is a Spirit-guided um, examination of Jesus' life. Um, and, and so therefore, those Spirit sayings, we would say in John's Gospel, would have been dear sayings to someone like the beloved disciple. And as he wrote this Gospel, I imagine him as being quite aware of the Spirit of God directing him uh, to write and interpret. Um, there are a couple places in John where this process is actually hinted at. Um, here's one example. In John chapter 2, in the second half, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and uh, uh, he causes a disturbance in the temple. And then at the very end, he says, uh, his disciples say, Master, look at these amazing stones. Jesus says, you know, well, I could tear these down and raise them up in three days. Of course, Jesus is metaphorically uh, referring uh, to the temple of his own body. Um, but then John gives us a sentence that most people miss. Mm. It says, look, you know, we really didn't understand these things until later after his resurrection. Meaning, <clears throat> after the resurrection, when the Holy Spirit comes, there is um, a capacity to understand the deeper meanings of Jesus' life. And so when John writes his story of Jesus, he actually tips us off. Look, we didn't know what was going on right here, but let me tell you, uh, now that I'm writing the story for you and the Holy Spirit is uh, at work in my own life, um, now I get what was going on, and I'm glad that I'm able to present it to you for your benefit. And adding to that as well, Gary, do you see that, that, that there's this, not just this understanding of Jesus and the story that comes about with the coming of the Holy Spirit, but also this missional call? That uh, does not the Gospel of John kind of kind of give this indication that okay, hey, Jesus started and inaugurated the, the work of the kingdom, but now I'm in, I'm empowering you, and the Holy Spirit's going to come right. upon you, so yep. that you can then carry out this call, this this missional call for the church and for God's people. Yeah, <clears throat> the framework um, John is actually using an ancient framework that is is somewhat interesting uh, for us just to think about. We don't have it in our modern world. Um, it's called agency. Let me explain that to you. The idea is. If I want to conduct a transaction between myself and somebody who's a thousand miles away, well, in the modern world, I can use a telephone, internet, lots of tools. But in the ancient world, you didn't have that. And so therefore, the person who is wanting to conduct that business is called uh, the sender. Let's use that term for it. And uh, the person who is sent is called the agent. Now, in the ancient world, everybody used this. It goes all the way back into the Hebrew Bible. It's in Jesus' world as well. So therefore, John's gospel describes uh, Jesus as the one who is sent from the Father. This is not an accidental reference. This is the language of agency. So there are rules that go with agency. So the sender empowers the agent with capacities so that whatever the agent does is binding back on the sender. That's the concept. Otherwise, if I was doing a transaction in business a thousand miles away and my agent wrote a contract, it has to be binding on me or business transactions would not work from a distance. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is the agent of God inside of the Gospel of John. Other languages use the Son of God and Son of Man and all of that. But that the fundamental idea is he, he is empowered by God. He only speaks what God tells him to speak. He does what God tells him to do. Okay, that's agency in the ancient world. Now here's the secret for the Gospel of John. We are now agents of him. Mm -hmm. Now, the curious thing is this. <clears throat> if I'm a sender 
and I want to send out an agent, and the agent can only go 500 miles, but my transaction is 1,000 miles. My agent is able to um, mm. appoint a secondary agent who will complete the, pro complete the process. So therefore, that secondary agent can actually do things which are binding on the agent, which are binding on the sender, and you can see how the chain works. Right. So therefore, when John imagines the church, who are we? We are agents of Jesus, who is an agent of God. So that really mm. helps us understand what it means to be the church. It means that we are speaking for Jesus, who is speaking for the Father. But that means we have an incredible amount of authority. But also, it's sobering because the, the value of what we do is going to be measured by our faithfulness to what Jesus has done. The agent should have a life that simply mimics or echoes the life of our um, uh, of, of his his or her sender. So anyway, um, yeah, the church in its own mission, therefore, has got to make sure that it is faithful and humble in its own status as one sent out by Christ. That's excellent. And and adding to that too as well, Gary, if you'll talk a little bit more about the, the, the temple theology then in the Gospel of John, because that really, I think that's really what the agent is sent out to do, right? Is to is to, to take God's presence and make it known, right? John, the Gospel of John begins with, we beheld his glory. Jesus then says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he empowers the disciples, the washing of their right. feet, and to be that divine presence of God uh, uh, upon the earth. Yeah, so the, the idea here you have in, throughout Judaism is, the question is, fundamentally, where do we have an encounter with God? Where is that locus? Where is that vortex where God is present? Well, the answer inside of the Hebrew Bible and in Judaism is, of course, the temple. That is where we have real encounters with God. God resides in this place. So it's very much locally defined. So therefore, when John's gospel begins to imagine, so how do we define Jesus? You have temple language being used for Jesus. So therefore, John says in 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right. So he uses the technical language of the dwelling place is actually the word in Greek used in the Greek Old Testament for the tabernacle. So he is that place where God is to be met, God is to be found. So you might say it this way, <clears throat> the, the, the reality of Jesus, uh, this enfleshment of God, we call it incarnation. This then is, becomes um, the locus where God can be encountered. This is where God can be found. So that is why John's gospel has this high, high view of who Jesus is in his identity. He doesn't simply speak for God. He doesn't simply represent God. He presents God himself. So that's a very different idea. He's not just an echo of the Father's words, but actually when he speaks, you actually are hearing the Father's words. So in John 14, in the upper room, one of the disciples says, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. It's not surprising by the time you get to John 14 that Jesus says, don't you realize that you've seen me, so you've seen the Father. It's, it's like the story that was asked to me one time by an elementary school children, no child. They were saying, well, okay, so when I die and I go to heaven, I really hope that I see Jesus first because I know that God is kind of angry. He's an old guy. He's got a white beard. And then when I see Jesus, everything's going to be cool. And so therefore, I'm going to die. I'm going to rush to Jesus, hide in his robes, and I'm going to say, hey, I, I don't know where the Father is, but I hope it's okay. I'm with you. I'm sticking with you. And at that moment, 
I believe that Jesus is going to say to that child, not to worry, you have seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. That is a conceptual framework that comes right from the Gospel of John. That's excellent. And then, so what we add to that as well then, Gary, the, the role of God's people, in the sense that um, when Christ appears to them after the resurrection and says, you know, you've become a new creation, right. uh, and, and he breathes on them, yep. that, that, that we too then become that representative of Christ, that in, in some sense that we should be able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. Yeah, and to a degree. But there's, okay. a, there's a lot of caution that goes with yes. that. You're right, Rob, that in the upper room in John 20, um, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive Holy Spirit. By the way, it's really interesting to, to note that the word for breathing on them is an unusual Greek word, emphusao. And this Greek word is the very word that is used back in Genesis when God breathes life into Adam. Exactly. So you've got really a recreation of humanity, the reconstituting of human life um, in the Holy Spirit. Um, but we would want to use the language of incarnation for Christ, but we would never want to use the language of incarnation for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So let me explain. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that what we have in Christ is the full embodiment of the Father in creaturely life. But what we have in our own life is a creaturely life, which is accompanied by the presence of God's Spirit. So in other words, there isn't, we are, we are creaturely a people. We come from below, you might say. We are people who, um, uh, we do not come from above. So therefore, there are limits to what people will see with us. They'll still see sinfulness inside of us. Mm -hmm. But there should be um, a transformation inside of our own lives that brings us nearer and nearer to that ideal creaturely life that was imagined way back in Genesis. Um, so ideally, uh, uh, when the world encounters us, um, they should be encountering a kind of transformed humanity that reflects the power of the Holy Spirit and entices that person to go beyond us and to experience Christ himself. So the measure of our life is we are not simply the, 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 the object of the world's attention. Mm. We are a conduit mm. if we are really living Christ-like lives. We are a conduit that carries people's attention to Christ and the Father. So, so Gary, this is fantastic, and I want to encourage the readers to, to, to look at some of your writings that we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, especially your commentaries on the Gospel of John, um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. One of, the, one of the ways that you and I got connected, Gary, was I was reading your, your commentary on 1st John. You might not know this story. Um, I was reading your commentary on 1st John, and you had a footnote uh, near the beginning of it, I believe, uh, that referenced your book, Whose Land, Whose Promise?, and I had just become initiated, so to speak, having gone to Bethlehem myself just, just before that. Uh, and had seen things for myself that was troubling for me. And right. uh, you know my story a little bit. Yeah. And, the, and the listeners can listen to some of my podcasts that tell my story a little bit. Um, and uh, so it sparked some curiosity. So I picked up your book. I read it. And I thought, this is incredible. So, Gary, can I have you back another time where we can discuss a little bit more deeply uh, your work, Whose Land, Whose Promise, and, and uh, your involvement with this, with this issue? Yeah, I'd love to come back, Rob. That would be fantastic. Um, yeah, I am a New Testament scholar who works in John and so forth. But, yeah, there's, God has just given me some unusual opportunities to explore um, this part of the world, and it has become an important piece of my own life. So, yeah, let's talk some more about it. Wonderful. I want to thank you again, Gary, for being with us today. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. 
You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.